Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. You may remember from other sermons that I have preached, the interesting story behind the temple is that it goes clear back to the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. That was a hallowed place, Mount Moriah. And it was in that spot that later on, David saw the judgment of God coming against Israel because of his own rebellion against God, watching the people of the kingdom die at the hands of the judgment of the Lord. And he scrambled to find a place that he could make a sacrifice to bring an end to this destruction that was coming on his people. And he bought the threshing floor of Ornan. And there he made a sacrifice to the Lord. That was, we believe, scholars believe, the same location as where Abraham, so long before that, had made the sacrifice of his son Isaac. And then whenever David's son Solomon built a temple, he built it on that spot, the threshing floor, and the site of the sacrifice of Isaac. David was not allowed to build a temple. God's reasoning was he was a man of war. But Solomon built the temple, and what a temple it was. We're told that the uh, expense that went into that temple is just beyond comprehension in this day and age. They used gold nails. Now you know the price of gold today. A nail made of gold, and every time they drove a nail in, you can see the expense going into that temple. The, uh, the total cost of the temple, it's difficult to bring those numbers into current day and age because you really don't know how to, to make the conversion. But some have estimated $186 billion that he would spend building that temple. I've never seen $186 billion anything in my life. That's a large number. And then Israel was besieged, run over by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. And the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was taken. And then the Babylonians in their empire gave way to the Medo-Persians and King Cyrus, the, the Persian king, for some reason, had a heart to allow the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. And he made a decree, go and build it. And then a short while later, he revoked the decree, don't build it. And their job was, at the time, 
to rebuild Solomon's temple. That's kind of where I'm going today with this sermon, is what they went through in that task of rebuilding the temple. I will enlarge a little bit on that, but I, I want to read just a portion of scripture, scripture from the book of Haggai that refers to this time of beginning this building program. It says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel. I'm glad it's not my name. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. And the Lord Almighty says, These people say the time has not come to rebuild the Lord's house. That's what the Lord is assessing of the people's attitude. It's not time yet. And the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while the house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. And you put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And all of these are the flow of expressions, Hebrew expressions, that just means he's overstating the case. Things are not going well with you. Have you ever stopped to ask why? This is what the prophet is saying to them. You're just not prospering. Things are not going well. And the reason being is because you've taken care of your own business, but you have not seen fit to go back to the project of rebuilding the temple. Now, let me put this in a time frame for you. They started the temple, but because Cyrus had revoked his decree, they stopped rebuilding the temple. But when they had an opportunity to start again, they didn't. They just got used to the idea of not rebuilding the temple. So they were in this, this uh, twilight zone, this sus- time of suspension. They do have an opportunity to rebuild it. They're not getting with it. And the prophet says, you know, things would go a whole lot better if you would take care of the Lord's business instead of just taking care only of your, biz- taking care only of your business. So the Lord says, give careful thought to your ways, go up into the mountains and bring down timber and start building my house so I can take pleasure in it and be honored. I just want to meander, if you'll allow me to, just kind of on a a low-key sharing of my heart, just for the few minutes to open this up. My father came from what we call the builder's generation. We give names to these generations. Some of you here today are from the builder's generation. I'm from the boomer's generation. But the builders were incredible people, very interesting generation. They lived through the experience of World War II, and it shaped their life. They, they tasted of the hardships of the Depression, and it impacted their life. 
their life experiences, these builders, you that are here today, you have a different value of the dollar than the X generation does and the Y generation. We have an X generation. The only, the only letter left we've got is Z, people. Is that a little bit foreboding? <laughs> And the good thing about it is, is they knew the value of the dollar. The bad part about it is, is it somehow forced many of them to become obsessive hoarders, finding it sometimes almost impossible to throw away a perfectly good piece of cardboard. Or an ink pen that has gone dry. I've known people that had drawerfuls of ink pens that have gone dry because they just can't bring themselves to throw away that perfectly good item. The only problem is it doesn't write, but that's no problem. It's, it's good other than that. I guess their thought probably is, in all sincerity, maybe I'll find two and make one good one out of two someday because that was kind of their mentality. They were fixers. They were repairers. They were remodelers. They were rebuilders. They were menders. My father would mend and repair anything and everything. His clothing, his tools, his cars, my clothing. Whatever needed repairing. We didn't throw out. We fixed things. More than once, I wore shoes to school that had been glued or taped or wired. Literally. We didn't throw them away. We repaired them and got a few more miles out of them. Jeans, if I got holes in my jeans, we sewed patches on until iron-on patches came along. And boy, wasn't that a blessing. As far as the jeans are concerned, the real tragedy there is I simply grew up in the wrong era because torn jeans in those days was a shame and a reproach. But you're cool today. I was cool before cool was cool. It's just that nobody appreciated it. My father purchased 10 acres outside of our hometown of Chillicothe. And on it, how many of you remember the show Green Acres, the old Haney place? On this 10 acres was the Haney house. As close as I can describe it without exaggerating, it was dilapidated. It was worthy only of a bulldozer. That's all. The foundation was stone that had been laid, that had, been, that had decayed and fallen out. The floors were so terribly warped, terrible humps and dips in the floors. And my father, coming from a builder's generation who doesn't throw anything away wants to remodel. So the first thing you have to do to remodel is you have to straighten floors. You have to patch foundations. You have to get 20-ton jacks and jack things up and put them in place and put braces in there. And all this that he went through, and then when he got done, it was too small. Then he starts building onto it. He adds a second story to it. He adds a two-car garage to it. All the things that my dad did to this, he could have tore the thing down and had a brand-new house. I saw the same thing in Alabama. There was a farmer down there that was, he made himself a millionaire. And he found this little log cabin 
much like the house my father found, that it was just a little one-room log cabin house. And he bought that land, and he bought that log cabin, and he promised his wife one of these days, I'm going to remodel this. Well, when he remodeled it, he built this huge house, I'm going to guess probably 3,000 square feet or more. And somewhere in the middle of this house was remnants of that little log cabin where you could still walk into that room, and there was... You say, why? I'm asking, why? Just get it out of the way and build. But there was the testimony that of, the, of the log cabin that he rebuilt for her. It was a beautiful, gorgeous home. Well, that was the builder's generation. Instilled in me is that desire to fix things. I, I've become quite handy in my life. I, I fix most of the things in our belongings that Ann and I have. I fix most of the things that break. I don't call repairmen. I fix things. I I fix the electronic things. I I fix the stereos. I fix the TVs. I, I, I fix the cars. I do all my own mechanic work, if at all possible. If I have the tools, if I don't, I, I go by the tools because it's the greatest excuse in the world, men, to have a great collection of tools. And I fix things. And I started off when I was little with this, this mentality of fixing things that when I was, had my first bicycle, and I realized that one of the complications has a bicycle is eventually you're going to have a flat. And how many of you know that in those days you didn't go buy a new tube, you patched it. You pulled the thing out and you put a patch on there and you put it back in. My tube was, had so many patches on it. Because you just didn't throw it away, you patch it again, and you patch it again. So you see, I, I understand this thing of fix it and rebuild it. There's some things you just don't throw out and start over. And that's paid off well for me. Because with this attitude of fixing things, Ann and I are still married. You see, when you got the attitude it can be fixed, you don't quit. You don't throw it out. We've got patches all over us. But we're still going. And it serves well. Some things are just not to be thrown out. You repair them. Some things you throw out. Some, some things, though, they're, they're just lifelong projects that you just keep patching them and fixing, like your kids. You can't throw them out. You just try and patch them up and fix them. You wake up one day and realize they aren't perfect. You dreamed they were going to be perfect when they were little. But they they grew and they didn't grow perfect. And you can't just haul them out to the dump. God says to Haggai, tell Zerubbabel, tell him I want my temple rebuilt. Now, there's not much rebuilding to go on. I mean, the devastation of Solomon's temple is so extensive that it's technically a rebuilding, but in essence, they're building a brand new temple. You don't don't even start with much of a foundation. There's a few stones somewhere. What an extensive rebuilding project. And they bought cedar logs, and they put them in the sea, and from Lebanon floated those things down to their location and uh, began to lay the foundation of this. And as it was coming together and the foundation was going in, the old priests were watching this. 
and they were watching the foundation go in, and, and they were standing there and shaking their head and clicking their tongue and going, it'll never be the same. This isn't going to get it. They, they remembered that temple and its beauty and its splendor, and they saw the workmanship and the cedar logs coming in. They said, it's, it's no use. It'll never be the same. And their complaint was, <clears throat> the glory of the former is so much greater than the glory of the latter will ever be. So they, they, they became dispirited, disheartened. Why try? Doesn't make any difference. So that was one of the, one of the difficulties in overcoming in this. But they finally got back on track, thanks to Haggai, bringing that prophecy forward, saying, God says he sees you standing idle and doing nothing. Let's get busy. And the first reason that people abandon their responsibilities, which is where Haggai found his people, not taking care of their responsibilities, is sometimes people become discouraged by the opposition. And in the book of Ezra, we see the beginning of this project and, and the opposition from those who had seen it and criticized what was going on. And then some of the enemies of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah began to physically oppose this project and work hard to discourage the people, which led eventually to King Cyrus saying, this is, this is more uh, difficulty than I had envisioned, so I'm going to revoke the edict to build it. So you have the the opposers, you have the naysayers, and you have the king finally saying, I said yes, but now I'm saying no. So for 14 years, the temple project, having been started with a few logs to lay the foundation, it just sat there and it was doing nothing. Anything that we set out to do for the kingdom of God is subject to resistance. Any opposition to the work of the Lord is absolutely rooted in the powers of darkness. Some are overwhelmed by the magnitude of the project. That's the reason they get discouraged. Some are convinced that the final product, as I said, just is never going to be good enough to even bother continuing with this. So with these opposition things going on, that's one reason. Many ways of being opposed or discouraged, but that's one reason people give up. I've met those kind of resistances in ministry. You've met those kind of things where for some reason it's tempting just to quit for any of those. People don't want you to do it. People talk bad about you. They criticize it. They laugh at you. They refuse to cooperate. They won't help. Yeah, you do anything. And so you just, are you going to quit or keep going? Now, I have a very specific application of this sermon here at Westside. We have this unmistakable task of rebuilding the temple, if I may use that. We faced some of the same discouragement elements as the people there in the days of Zerubbabel. 
We faced opposition. There's no question about it. We faced projects that have been bigger than ourselves. And we still do face some opposition in, in that sense. Things that seem overwhelming for us. And there, there always seems to be just a, a few people that just like in the, in, in the days of, of uh, Haggai, Zerubbabel, Ezra, there seems to be always a few people that cannot get yesterday out of their mind. So we're always working about what we used to be. 99% of you are not there anymore. But there's always a few people you run into. And I know it because you come and tell me. Like, that's the best news I wanted to hear that day. I ran into so-and-so, and they said, well, what about Westside? You know, is it ever going to be? I know it. You know it. It happens. But that's one of the challenges we have is there's some people that all they can think about is the glory of the former. And uh, consequently, their opinion is it'll never be what it used to be. Well, I could probably hand this mic to somebody right now. You, probably, you people are fired up this morning, aren't you? But it doesn't matter. Because the fact remains, we still have a task at hand. No matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody thinks, the fact remains, God wants his temple rebuilt. All of these obstacles that we can think of, notwithstanding, we still have a project. Here's three promises God gave to Zerubbabel to encourage him in this project. He said, first of all, uh, he gave him the promise of his abiding presence. And this is what kind of got me into next week's sermon, the presence of the Lord. He says, as I read from the second chapter of Haggai, Be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God knows they needed to hear that. If they're going to get this project done, they must be convinced that God says, I'll be with you the entire way. Do not fear, and my spirit will remain with you. I like that. I'm with you. My spirit remains among you. Now, one of the main features of the new covenant, which is what we live under, is the abiding presence of God through the person of the Holy Spirit. This was not so in the Old Covenant. We have evidence of the presence of God that is symbolized there. It was a real presence, but the symbols of his presence there reminded us of the presence of the Lord. We have the visible testimonies of the cloud and the fire. God was there, but these were the visible testimonies of his presence. The tabernacle was full of items that reminded people of the presence of God in the tabernacle. Mount Sinai glowed and shook from the presence of God. And after Solomon had completed the temple... 
He ordered the Ark of the Covenant to be placed in the inner sanctuary, which was fully symbolic of the presence of God. And the priests placed the Ark in the inner sanctuary. They had consecrated themselves in preparation for this. And all the Levites, who were the musicians, stood on the east side of the altar and they played their cymbals and their harps and their lyres. And 120 priests suddenly blasted out on their trumpets and the trumpeters and the musicians and the singers all joined in at the placement of the Ark of the Covenant in that inner chamber. And then they all broke out in a song. And this is the little worship chorus that they began to sing. He is good, and his love endures forever. And then when they sang that little worship chorus, the power and the glory of the Lord came down in that place, and the temple was filled with the cloud and the glory of the Lord so powerfully that priests were unable to perform their services. That was the powerful presence of God. But in the New Testament, Jesus not only came and dwelt among us in physical form, but when he went away, he did not forsake us. He said, I must go away. If I do not go away, the Comforter will not come, but I will go and I will send him unto you. The abiding presence of God today through the Holy Spirit is unique to the people of the new covenant. We see those instances of the presence of the Lord with them in the Old Testament But we are not going to have those sporadic events in the new covenant. He sent the Holy Spirit here who was an ever presence with us now. He is always with us. And the abiding presence of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit is the most prominent feature of Paul's theology. Over and over and over he writes about being people of the Spirit. That's where I'll be going next week. He plainly declared in one point, he said, My speech and my preaching were not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but they were with the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. Because Paul believed in the presence of God in his life, that without the presence of God, we are not people of God. We must have his presence to be his people. Number two, the promise of God's miraculous power that God gave to Zerubbabel. In a little while, he said, I will once again shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will... Fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Now, after the disciples waited in Jerusalem for their empowering encounter with the Holy Spirit, they immediately began to experience miracles in their ministry. Immediately after the, the, the encounter with the Holy Spirit there on the day of Pentecost, people were healed. 
Prisons were miraculously broken open. The lame began to walk. The dead were raised because God's power was with them. God miraculously delivered Peter out of jail. God worked through Paul to perform special miracles. He transported Philip from the desert place down immediately to Azotus where he began to preach his way to Caesarea. God miraculously delivered Paul from a deadly storm and spared all the people on board the ship. And the people of Malta watched as he gathered firewood and threw it into the fire and a poisonous snake came from that stack of wood and latched onto Paul. He should have been dead within seconds. But he just shook it off. And the people watched and waited for him to die, but he didn't die. He didn't even blink. He just went on about his work. Because when you have the power of the presence of God in your life, it doesn't make any difference how the enemy attacks you. You can just shake it off and go about your work. God was with them as they spread the gospel. He promised those who would follow him the greater things they would do because he was going to his Father that we might boldly say the Lord is our helper. And we shall not fear what man will do unto us. We've been given the Holy Spirit and the many gifts that go along with that. And the vocal gifts that we might speak. The mind gifts that we might understand. And the power gifts that we might do the mighty things of God. Whatever God calls us to do. God can shake heaven and earth. He can shake the nations. He can move mountains to make sure that the job gets done. Rest assured. He said, I'll be with you. My spirit will be with you. Don't get discouraged. I can make this happen. Number three, God promised them greater things ahead. And this is where we come to the criticism of the older priests. And they said it will never be the same. We remember what it used to be like, and this just isn't anything like it used to be like. There was a story one time of a woman who wrote to the editor of a magazine or the owner of the magazine, and she wrote in criticism and said to him, your magazine is not as good as it used to be. And he wrote her back and said, Madam, it never was. And sometimes we look on yesterday... And think how great it was. And oh, if we could just have yesterday. If we could just go back and do what we did yesterday. To the faithless and discouraged people who could only reflect on the unparalleled splendor of Solomon's temple. For those who could not bring themselves to even imagine they could ever recover that majestic beauty. God gave this promise. To the ones who said it'll never be the same. It'll never be as good. The best days are behind us. God said, the glory of this present house is going to be greater than the glory of that house before. And they couldn't imagine it, but God promised it. They couldn't see how, but God promised it. In fact, they couldn't even see it after it was completed because the second temple... Zerubbabel's temple, compared to Solomon's temple, they looked at it. 
It was not near as ornate as Solomon's temple. And they said, why would you even suggest, God, that the glory of the latter will exceed the glory of the former? It doesn't even look on the outside as nice as Solomon's temple. It was not as large as Solomon's temple. How can you say the glory of the latter will exceed the glory of the former? From a physical point of view, it was an inferior temple. And as soon as the foundations were laid, they made up their mind. It just isn't going to be any good. And the Bible says they broke down and cried when they saw the foundation being laid. The ark was gone. Urim and Thummim were gone. That means by which they were to discern the direction of the Lord. The fire from heaven that filled the former temple didn't fill the latter temple. It was gone. There was no glory cloud in this temple like the temple of Solomon. It was gone. What could there possibly be in this substandard temple that would make the glory of make the glory of the latter greater than the glory? What could it possibly be? What's God talking about? Because people assess with their eyes. And they can't see that the glory of the latter could in any possible way be greater than the glory of the former. When you're thinking in the physical, when you're only looking in the physical, you're not going to get the right message. And they look at it for size, for beauty, for endurance for the glory cloud, for the fire that was always on the altar. Nothing. They couldn't see it. And God's promise seemed as though it was in vain. But God said the glory of that temple is going to be greater than Solomon and greater than his temple. And Jesus tipped his hand a little bit from the time they rebuilt that temple, Zerubbabel's temple, until the time Herod came along and decided to invest some money in Zerubbabel's temple and upgrade it and remodel, and they did. It was a significant upgrade, again. But it was nevertheless considered Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's temple, just a remodel. And he, and he built bigger outer courts, and he, he increased it. And here's Zerubbabel's temple. From the time that they laid those cedar logs... Through the years until Herod finally decided we need to remodel this place. There was still nothing that gave them the clear understanding why this temple should ever be more glorious than Solomon's temple. But Jesus tipped his hand. It was kind of off subject, but he, he muttered, he said, the queen of the south, will rise up at judgment with the people of this generation and will condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. But here is our hint. But he said, I want to tell you, a greater than Solomon is here. And we begin to see what God is hinting at when he said the glory of the latter is going to be greater than the glory of the former. And Jesus said they came from around the world to see Solomon, but are greater than Solomon. Is there something that is greater than Solomon and something that is greater than Solomon's temple?
Something that's greater than the perpetual fire and something that's greater than that Shekinah that came down and filled the temple. Something that is greater. What could it possibly be? Jesus was the express expression of God's glory, the Bible tells us. And they wrote of him and they said, we saw him in all of his glory. And we follow that word word glory through the New Testament and Jesus and we suddenly see a dimension to the existence of Jesus we never saw before. It was about he was the glory of God manifest here on earth. And when Jesus was just a baby and they said, we're going to take him where? To the temple. We're going to get him dedicated. There was a man there that God had spoken to him in a dream and said, Simeon, you will see the glory of the Lord before you die. You will see the Messiah. And so he's waiting and he's praying and he's holding on to the promise. I get to see the glory. Where is it? And he's praying and they, Mary and Joseph come in with this little baby and he saw the glory and he knew He knew through the power of the Holy Spirit, there's the glory of the Lord. And from a little baby, he was filling the temple in a way that that cloud could never fill the temple of Solomon. And it only started there because when he was 12 years old and mom and dad made a trip to Jerusalem for the feast, they all loaded up and headed back home. And Mary says to Joseph, where's Jesus? And she says, I thought you had him. They panicked. We've got to turn around. And they went back to Jerusalem and they're scampering. Where is he? Where is he gone? They didn't think if you just look at the temple. So they go into the temple and there's all these finest minds of the scripture. The finest scholars that Judaism had produced in those days. They're all sitting around listening to this 12 year old bring forth the word of God. At 12 years old the glory of the Lord filled the temple again. Whenever Jesus went into the temple and found that there were thieves and robbers there and he was protective of his father's house and he made a whip and he went in there and drove them out and said, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. He dismissed that element from the temple and he brought back the glory to the temple. He's the expression, he's the full expression of the glory of the Lord. And he became the sacrificial lamb because in the temple area where they sacrificed that spotless lamb every year, it had to be redone every year. But Jesus, the lamb of God, was sacrificed once and for all. And it was the priests, in a sense, in a sense, it was the priests of the temple who sacrificed that lamb but brought glory to the temple and brought salvation such as man has ever known in the glory of the latter temple. Began to exceed the glory of the former temple because no matter how nice it was and how it was encrusted with gems and layered with gold, nothing compared to the presence of Jesus. Now I'm telling you people, we're on a rebuilding program and we can look back and see where we've been. I don't have any problem with where we've been. It's just that I can't see where I'm going if I keep looking back. I appreciate where we've been. I'm more interested in where we are and where we're going. And rebuilding the temple. And I can't get caught up 
in the physical things and saying, well, we'll never be what we used to be. On the physical, we'll never be. It just isn't the same old west side. But what can it be? And I'll tell you this. I don't know how many people we used to run because nobody knows the exact number. But if it was 2,000 or 2,500 or whatever it was, counting all the kids that were crawling over this campus, we may never have that again. I don't care. What I want is the presence of the Lord in the temple. That's all that matters. I don't care if I can't get a thousand in here. I don't care. But one thing I will not settle for less than, and that is the presence of God in the temple. I want the presence of God to be so powerful here that people are arrested from their lifestyle. That they are awakened from their dreams. That that, that they are awakened from their spiritual slumber. That they suddenly discover God all over again and fall all in love with Him again. I want people so overcome by the presence of the Lord that we can't even do our job anymore. God starts doing our job for us. We want the presence of God in our place. I was talking with with Russ a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. He'll remember saying this. And he put it this way. He said, we need to be more concerned about being people of the Spirit than being people of Pentecost. And he didn't know I'd already been dwelling on this. What's it mean? To be more important, more important to us, more focused on being people of the Spirit than being people of Pentecost. Because being people of Pentecost can become such a sacred cow. We've described ourselves as being Pentecostals because of the way we worship and how we might are, are more interactive than, than maybe a church that's not Pentecostal. And we've described things. But you know what? When you, when you are first and foremost people of the Spirit, the other labels are meaningless. It doesn't matter. Being primarily people of the Spirit means we covet the presence of God above everything else we could possibly think to pray for. Lord, make us people of the Spirit as we rebuild this temple. May we, God, I'm asking permission, may we, God, expect the glory of the latter to exceed the glory of the former, if for only one reason, that God is here in a way that we haven't seen in a long, long time. That his presence becomes more powerful and more real and more penetrating every Sunday that we come in here anticipating the presence of the Lord and not bringing the garbage in here that drives his presence out, but leaving it, parking it at the door and coming in and say, God, I just want to be in your presence today. I want the Holy Spirit to fill the worship team until they don't know where they're going. The Spirit just leads them along. And he begins to flow in here and filling the people here who quit looking around at the spots on the wall and start getting into the presence of the Holy Spirit. People who get hungry for the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. They say, I read about it, but I don't know what it's all about. And God begins to baptize people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they find this life-changing encounter. Let us be people of the Spirit. We're going to rebuild the temple to the glory of the Lord. And I'm asking and praying that the glory of the latter is going to exceed the glory of the former. Because God is going to be in this place. 
Bow your heads.